Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Good, hopefully. Uh, I'm glad you're here for this day. Uh, we are going to be finishing 1 Peter chapter 3. If you're new here with us, uh, we've been working through the book of 1 Peter, and we find ourselves at a very exciting text. That's why I'm, I'm glad you're here. Uh, this is a text that is both very encouraging and also very uh, puzzling at the same time. Uh, if you've read ahead, uh, you, you may know why that is, but um, let me just give you a, a few brief reasons. It's, it's a very encouraging text because Peter is going to talk to us a lot about what Jesus has done for us to bring encouragement. We're going to see encouragement in the sufferings of Jesus. We're going to see encouragement in the victories of Jesus. Fantastic. It's puzzling, though, because right in the middle of our text uh, this morning, uh, there are some verses which are, uh, frankly, just very difficult to understand. Uh, very, very difficult to know exactly what is meant by these verses. In fact, uh, all biblical scholars will say these are some of the most puzzling verses in all of the New Testament. Uh, so it's going to be lots of fun because we get to try to puzzle them out. Uh, I want to give you a bit of a framework just for kind of where we're going and how that middle section fits in. So here's what I want you to think of our text this morning. Uh, think of it like a route on Google Maps. Uh, if you have used Google Maps, you know you can plug in multiple destinations and then Google, in all its wisdom, will tell you the uh, most direct route, right? The most efficient route. But sometimes when you're using Google Maps, uh, th there will be, when it comes up, like a loop in the middle of your route, uh, a detour. And, uh, you know, you're always puzzled by that. Why isn't it a straight line? Why is there this loop? And as you go in closer, you'll see a dashed line. And usually there's a problem, right? There's construction, there's road closure, there's an accident. And so Google, because it knows everything, uh, tells you, look, don't go here. You have to go all the way around, out, and then back to your route. And, and it makes sense. That's how I want you to think of our text this morning. In fact, I'm going to show you visually uh, this route so that you can kind of, we can grasp it in our mind. So here it is. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22 as a, as a route, as a line. And it's sort of in three sections. So the first section is uh, verse 18, where we are going to find great encouragement in the sufferings of Jesus. Okay, the, the, the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus. Uh, fantastic encouragement there. At the end, verse 22, there are, there's great encouragement in the victories of Jesus, the ascension, the exaltation of Jesus. And if you look at those two things, it really seems like there should be a straight line. Right? Because the one leads to the other. But in fact, our text looks more like this. There's a detour right in the middle. And if you're wondering what's on that detour and why it's puzzling, I'll just summarize it in this way. Uh, verses 19 to 21, we are told that Jesus goes somewhere and says something to someone from the time of Noah. Is basically the, the best way to say it. If you've read the text, you know what I'm talking about. We'll, we'll read it in a minute. Uh, but it's puzzling. And so it's like a detour. Um, the dashed line, if you were to zoom in close, we're, we're frankly not exactly sure why there's this detour. Um, but we, here's what we know. These verses, all of them, are just as equally divinely inspired. As, as, so the beginning parts that are clear, the middle parts is not as clear. All of it is from the Lord. So we're going to approach this text with the just sort of um, trust that we do each week is that we ha there's a word in here from the Lord for us. And then that's how we're going to approach the text. Um, also, we should note, the reason I did that is, is that we do get back to the main idea. So it's not a text that just kind of goes off and we're not sure where it ends. We know where it ends. We know the main idea. There's parts in here that are very clear, very encouraging. Okay? So, 
Uh, I'm going to read the text, and we're going to pray, and then we're going to get to it. Uh, beginning in verse, verse 18, the word of God to us this morning is this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So that's our text. Uh, let me pray for us. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, every Sunday as we gather, every time we open our Bible, uh, we know you're speaking to us. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would have ears to hear. Lord, we'd, we'd have minds that are prepared to uh, think carefully and hearts that are prepared to, uh, to feel deeply the truths that are contained here within this passage. Uh, Lord, we do thank you for this opportunity and pray that... Um, that we would um, not just think intellectually, Lord, but that we would be moved and changed uh, by your spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So three sections. Uh, the first one is this, that there is encouragement in the sufferings of Christ. That there is great encouragement for us, those of us who are believers, uh, in the sufferings of Christ. And we see this right away in verse 18. Verse 18 begins, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Uh, that's a reference to last week's passage. If you're with us, we talked a lot about the fact that uh, as Christians, we are called to suffer for doing good. So this is Peter continuing on with the idea of suffering. Uh, we as Christians are called to suffer. And he's saying here, look, remember, Jesus also suffered. So already there's a bit of comfort and encouragement there. Because if we are suffering for doing good, uh, we should know or be reminded of the fact that we're in good company with Jesus. He also suffered. He also suffered unjustly. The real encouragement, though, from this uh, sort of beginning verse isn't so much in the similarities, though, like that, that we suffered and Jesus suffering. It's more in the differences. It's in the uniqueness of the sufferings of Jesus. So let's look at that. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So we suffer to honor the Lord. We suffer to honor Jesus as we're, we're followers of him, but Jesus suffered to actually bring us to God. See, for the Christian faith, for those of us who believe, uh, this is the origin of all encouragement and all hope in our lives. Right? The crucifixion is where it all begins. Because what we're reminded of here is though we were unrighteous, Though we were sinful, though, though we are rebellious and prideful and ungrateful people, we were brought into peaceful relationship with a holy God by the sufferings of Jesus. And that means encouragement for us because regardless of the sufferings that we're going through right now, regardless of, of the sin that we're struggling with right now, we can know for sure that we are not alone, that, that we are not cast off, that we are no longer under the wrath of God, we will never be forgotten or rejected or overlooked. We have been welcomed back into the family of God. This is, this is the gospel. 
This is the, the wonder of the love and mercy of God shown in the cross of Jesus. And the amazing thing is that Peter just begins here. It's just like half of a verse already contained this, this gospel wondrous truth that as human beings alienated from God because of our own sin, we're, we're brought near, brought to God because of the sufferings of Jesus. But he moves almost immediately past that to the resurrection. And we see this in the, the last part of the verse. It says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now this doesn't mean, it's kind of worded a bit strangely. This doesn't mean that Jesus was, was made only alive spiritually. It means he was made fully alive by the power of the Spirit of God, which itself is encouraging because it, it tells us or reminds us that Jesus actually accomplished what he came to do. He, he came to have victory over Satan, over sin, over death, and his resurrection means that he accomplished that. He was made alive again. He didn't stay dead. But it's even more encouraging for us personally because we get to share in this. This is something that we are united with Christ in. In fact, we see this really clearly uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is writing about this. Uh, he says this, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, all who have faith. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So it's kind of like Jesus is the first uh, fruits of the harvest. Right? The first day of harvest, Jesus is harvested first. His resurrected body assures us that, that when it's our time to come, we also will be resurrected. We will have the, the hope of a, of a glorified, perfect body as well. So the connection for us is that this isn't just something amazing that happened to Jesus. This is something that applies directly for us, those who believe. The challenge, though, I think of this like, like of the resurrection hope that's being, we're being reminded of here, is that I think for a lot of us, uh, we, we believe this, like if we're, if we're Christians, we believe this, but it's, it's sometimes difficult to actually feel and apply the encouragement for, for right now, like in our lives right now. Because, um, praise God, a lot of us have fairly healthy bodies. Uh, if you're on the relatively young spectrum, I'm not sure where it is, right? I'm 43, I'm right in the middle, right? So I'm just almost over the edge. But, you know, if you're, if you're someone who can go on a hike without stretching, eat whatever you want, you don't have aches and pains when you wake up, you know, the resurrection is great. And you're glad that when you die, you're not gonna stay dead, but it's kind of like way out there in the future. And so if you're suffering right now, it's, it's difficult to see, you know, how, how to really feel this kind of hope. However, there are others here um, that really, really do need this and feel this. Uh, they would be those of us whose body, uh, rather than being a source of joy, is, is a source of discomfort and pain. Uh, there are many of us who, for years, uh, have, have been dealing with that pain on a daily basis. Uh, there are many of us for whom our, our bodies are we're in that stage of life where every month, every year, there's something else that tends to go wrong. And we know it's just a matter of time before our body fails us completely. Uh, there's a, a woman that uh, I, I knew. I grew up next to her, uh, one of my old neighbors, who uh, went through that just this past week. Her name is Mrs. Walker. And uh, Mrs. Walker was 95 years old, and uh, she passed away yesterday. And... Uh, and she was a great woman of faith. Uh, her daughter uh, attends our church, Wendy McNally, her granddaughter, Linnea. 
And Mrs. Walker uh, was probably the first person to share the gospel with me when I was a kid. She had an after-school Bible club. I, I barely remember it. I don't even know if I understood what was happening at the time, but she was probably the one who prayed for me before I even knew I needed to be prayed for. Great woman of faith. And uh, Linnea said to me this week uh, earlier, uh, she said, you know, my grandma, she's not, she's not doing so well. Um, she, she'd, her body had been failing for years. Her mind had been failing for years. But this week, Linnea said that she was asking a lot uh, when someone was going to take her to heaven. Uh, you know, she just seemed to know that, that it was the end. Her, her bo- it was the end for her body. In a sense, the end for her mind. Her life was at, at an end, and yet her hope was not at an end. This sort of future, maybe vague for some of us, hope of the resurrection was, was immediate for her. It was, it was all she had and it was all she needed because she, she knew that she had already been made alive in the spirit like it's talking about here in our text. She knew that, that when she died, she'd be immediately with the Lord and that she would have the hope of a resurrected body to come when Jesus returned. See, his triumph over death meant her triumph over death. Right? His um, relief from physical pain meant her relief from physical pain. See, this is the final and most satisfying answer to the suffering of our lives because it it goes farther than any source of comfort that this world has to offer. That's the glory of what Peter is reminding us of here, of what Jesus has accomplished for us. And it's worth thinking about because, because there are a lot of other sources of encouragement out there in the world. Like, like there's a lot of other things that the world would have us hope in or believe in or look to for encouragement when we're, when we're feeling low. And, and the truth of the matter is that a lot of those things uh, are fairly compelling. I mean, in the moment, uh, in an evening, in a morning, we're feeling low. Like those, those things seem much more immediate. And, and they have a certain amount of effect on our emotions, uh, psychologically, right? We feel lifted up with whatever it might be. But the, the truth of the matter, what we're reminded of here is that all of those things, they will fail us in the end. They won't carry us through. I'll give you one just um, example of, of this kind of contrast. Uh, just yesterday, I was listening uh, to this interview with uh, a singer. Uh, her name is Mary Clayton. Uh, she's not, her name, you might not know her name, but you've, you've probably heard her sing. Uh, she sung backup for some of the, the greatest singers of all time. She, she began singing in the 60s. Um, she was 15, she started singing, sang with Ray Charles, Bobby Darin, sang with the Rolling Stones, probably one of her most famous uh, sort of backup gigs was singing on the Rolling Stones song, Gimme Shelter, if you know that song, uh, where she's got that high voice, get a shot away, okay, I won't sing it, but <laughs> I was listening to it yesterday, you can look it up, just this amazing voice, and um, had a great career, so the interviewer was asking her about her life, and she described herself as a person of faith, but not a religious person, which is interesting. And the interviewer, maybe picking up on that, asked a very interesting question. Uh, the interviewer said, when, before you sing, like before a concert, what do you pray for your audience? And I was like, oh, that's an interesting question. And so here's her response. I'm going to put it up on the screen because I think it's quite fascinating. She, she replied this way. She said, uh, before I go on, I pray that they, the audience, that they will be touched, that they will be delivered from whatever they are going through, that they will come away with a smile on their face and know that they can make it in any situation that they go through. You can make it through anything, but you have to know who you are. 
I thought that was fascinating because, I mean, I can, I can get what she's talking about. She's someone who performs for, for big crowds of people, and what she wants in that concert experience is for them to be lifted up, for them to be encouraged. And if you've been to a concert for someone that you love, you know that that, that can be what happens, that you can go from that place feeling like your spirit's lifted, feel like you can do anything, you're so encouraged. There's, there's something right about what she's saying. We do need to know who we are to make it through anything, but of course, there's a huge missing piece because it's not enough to know who we are. We need, we need to know who Jesus is. We need to know who we are in, in Christ because even the most amazing worldly experience that genuinely encourages us, that has us just kind of walking on air, like we're so excited. I mean, anything like that feels great in the moment, but the truth of the matter is that there's gonna be a day when all of that just evaporates, when we're on a hospital bed or in a care home and, and there's nothing that the world can do for us. There's, there's nothing that any source of encouragement or hope can do for us. And it's not enough in that moment just to know who we are. We need to know who Christ is and what he's done. The encouragement comes from knowing that we are united with him, united with him in his death, united with him in his resurrection, so that even when the worst happens, even when it all falls apart, we are encouraged, we are hopeful in him. This is what Peter's talking about. This is what Peter's writing, his, his letter to the church back then and, and to us, is to say, there is great encouragement for you, even in the midst of your sufferings, because Christ suffered, because he, he brought you to God, because he was made alive. All of that he did, for you, to reveal the mercy and glory of God and to bring you hope in the midst of your dark times. This is the beginning of the encouragement in this text. It's pretty good so far, right? I mean, this is, this is some great truths. This is some amazing uh, verses about who Jesus is, what he's done, and this is just the beginning section. Remember, the end section where we're going is, is past the resurrection to the ascension, to the exaltation of Jesus, more encouragement to come. In the middle, though, don't forget, we have a bit of a detour. So, so let's hit that detour now. Uh, point number two, a puzzling detour. Uh, we're going to begin with verses 19 and 20, which read this way. I'll read it again. So being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he, that is Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So let me be clear up front. Uh, there is no definitive answer for what these verses mean. Uh, the great theologian Martin Luther said this, and I quote, I cannot understand it and I cannot explain it. So if that's from Martin Luther... Um, then we have to adjust our expectations in terms of what we're going to be able to do uh, this morning. However, I should mention this. Um, the fact that there are some verses in here that are difficult to understand does not undermine the credibility of the Bible. Okay, the vast majority of the Bible is crystal clear, and it's crystal clear on the things that are of most value and importance to us, the key doctrines of the faith. Who is God? Who are we? What, what help do we need? What hope has he provided for? All of those crystal clear. But this is still a book written by God about God, an infinite, omnipotent, omniscient being and his plans for the universe. So it shouldn't surprise us if there are some parts that kind of stretch our ability to grasp what, what he is saying. 
And it should be okay with us to say, uh, you know what, I'm going to have to save that for heaven, and I'm going to put on my list of things to ask, okay? But be that as it may, uh, it's helpful, I think, to, to think about what are some uh, possibilities, some options that scholars have suggested. Look, this is what this is referring to, because it's good for us to engage our minds. So I'm going to give you three of the main views about what this could mean. The first one, I would say, is definitely not true. Second one might be true. Third one might be true and is my favorite, okay? So, uh, option number one. Uh, scholars will say that what's being said in this text is this, that Jesus gave dead people from the time of Noah a second chance to believe. So the theory is that between his death and his resurrection, Jesus descended down into hell and preached to those people who had already died in the time of Noah, offering them an opportunity to repent and to be saved. And the main reason that people will make this sort of suggestion, this theory, is because in church history, there's uh, something called the Apostles' Creed. And in the Apostles' Creed, there's a line, it just describes what Jesus has done. There's a line that says, Jesus descended to hell. And so what they will say is, oh, look, that creed has been around since the very beginning. And that creed has parts of the uh, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension in the middle. It says Jesus went to hell. Um, and so that kind of seems like what's going on here in First Peter, that he went to these spirits in prison, that he proclaimed something to them, and people put two and two together. They say, this is what I think it means. There's a big problem with this theory. Uh, there's some linguistic problems with it. But the main problem is that the idea that any human beings get a second chance to believe after they die is just contrary to the clear teaching of the Bible. That's the main problem here. Uh, nowhere in the Bible does it teach that human beings get a second chance at faith after, after death. In fact, the Bible teaches very clearly the opposite. Uh, here's a couple of verses uh, to, just to show that. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. See the sequence. There's, there's no purgatory, there's no, that's not a biblical idea. There's an opportunity in, in life to believe, and then after that comes judgment. Uh, the words of Jesus in Luke 13.3 make this clear. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he means perish spiritually. And, and this really is the emphasis of his whole ministry. When he came to earth, he's saying, now is the time. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now is the time to believe. Now is the time to respond as human beings, you're, you're sinful, you're in need of hope, you can't approach death with any hope unless you believe in me, I'm the Messiah. That's why I'm going to the cross, that's why I'm dying on your behalf, so that you would be able to repent. The reason that Jesus hasn't returned is because of the patience of God, the mercy of God, giving humanity time to hear the gospel. That's, that's why he told us as the church to go and make disciples, that's why our mission statement is to make Jesus known because the thing that every human being on the planet needs to hear is, is the gospel hope. And so the idea that there would be some additional opportunity afterwards is simply, it's not, it's not there in the Bible. So the proper understanding of the Apostles' Creed is not that Jesus literally descended to hell, but that he experienced hell for us on the cross. And the proper understanding of this passage, whatever it is, uh, has nothing to do with people getting a second chance at salvation after they die. It's just not, not a biblical concept. That's why I said the first one, people will advocate for that, but, but not biblical. So that's why I don't like that one. Option number two is this. Um, some people will say, look, here's what's going on here. Uh, this is describing Jesus, that he went and preached to the people at the time of Noah through Noah. 
Okay? This is what they say. They say Jesus didn't actually go there, but we know that Noah was preaching to the people before the flood, telling them to repent. And they're saying, look, this, is, this was Jesus in, inspiring his words, kind of proclaiming to these spirits in prison, like they were imprisoned by their sin. That's, that's what's going on here. There's some problems with this idea. First of all, the text says, look, Jesus went somewhere, but this theory is saying that he didn't actually go anywhere. So that's, that's a problem. Um, also, spirits in the Bible generally refers, almost always refers to, um, not to human beings, but to like angelic spirits, supernatural beings. So to say that he was speaking to people uh, d- doesn't seem to make sense. Also, the timing is weird, right? If this happened at the time of Noah, why would Peter situate it within the crucifixion? So this is possible, but um, maybe not likely. The third option, the third option, this is exciting, right? You guys came thinking, I want all these theological options. Okay, third option, last one, the best one, uh, is this. Jesus proclaimed his victory to the fallen angels from the time of Noah. That's what's going on here. This is describing Jesus proclaiming his victory on the cross to the fallen angels from the time of Noah. So the idea is uh, sometime after his resurrection, Jesus went to the fallen angels and proclaimed his victory like a victory lap. You know, when you win, you do a skate around the ice and it's him basically saying to the angels, I defeated you, I conquered you and proclaiming the victory. Now, supporting evidence for this, the word proclaim Some people uh, will argue and say, look, that actually is the word preach, right? So if anyone's doing any proclaiming, it's got to be about the gospel, but that's not always the case in the Bible. Sometimes you announce other things, so it could be here that Jesus is announcing his victory. Um, As I said, spirits fits better with the idea of angels or fallen angels. So if he was speaking to anyone, it makes sense to speak to uh, angels, fallen angels in this case. Prison here fits with the idea of the imprisonment of Satan in Revelation 27, And the big question that you might be asking is, it talks here about these spirits who were disobedient in the time of Noah. What exactly is going on there? Here's what they say. In Genesis 6, we get get a little glimpse of what looks like some fallen angels who were um, disobeying the Lord, doing, doing something wrong. And I'll put it up on the screen so you can see what this could be. Genesis 6 verse 1 says, When men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, the fallen angels, saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. So what's being described here, uh, many will say, is the intermarrying between fallen angels and uh, human, some human women, which only added to the sin of the world. We see just another couple of verses later, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And right after that, we get the flood of Noah. So we get the judgment from God upon humanity. And so the idea here is that also those fallen angels would also have been punished in some way, put into a prison of some sort. And that's what's being described in 1 Peter. So there's some problems with this uh, interpretation as well. Uh, For one thing, it's not actually clear in Genesis 6 that the angels were punished in this way. Uh, And the main problem with all of these interpretations is that we don't actually know for sure where Jesus went or what he said when he got there. So that's the reason why for all of these, this is not something that we're going to ever hold in a closed hand. This is something that is uh, helpful, interesting to discuss something that as people of the Bible, we want to look into every verse of scripture. In fact, uh, there are other 
suggestions about what this could be. If you want to spend some time on the internet, you will find a whole bunch of others. And it could be fun in community group to bring those up. But these are all things that we will hold uh, with an open hand, lightly. The reason, uh, just if you're wondering why I like this third version the best, is because I think it seems to fit best with the parts of this passage that are clear. If you remember, remember our detour, the first bit was encouragements in the sufferings of Jesus. The third bit is encouragement in the victories of Jesus. So it would make sense to me that the middle part would have something to do with the victories of Christ. That would seem to fit, although we don't, we don't know for sure. There's one other stop on our detour but before we move on, and that's verse 21. That's this, a bit of an odd verse about baptism. So let's hit that. Here's verse 21. Baptism, says Peter, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now the wording there is a bit uh, interesting. And the main question that you might be asking is, why is he saying that baptism saves us? Because if you go to our baptism class in a couple weeks, one of the first things we're going to tell you is baptism does not save us. Uh, and Peter doesn't mean that here. He does not mean that getting dunked under the water means that you're magically uh, just kind of all your sins are taken away, that it has some sort of salvific effect. That's not, in fact, what baptism is about. And Peter explains that, just a bit of an odd phrasing. He says, it now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body. So he's saying, look, the waters of baptism, they can't even clean your body. If you're dirty and you go into the waters of baptism, you're going to be dirty when you come out. So they don't clean you physically and they don't clean you spiritually. What's going on in baptism is that those who are baptized have made an appeal to the mercy of God. They've made an appeal that God would cleanse their conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a symbol of what God has done. That those who are baptized are people of faith who say, I recognize my conscience does need to be cleansed. And it happened, it was achieved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So in baptism, I'm going to show you a symbol of what God has done for me already. Under the water, symbolize the death of Jesus, and then raised new life in Christ. It's not the waters of baptism that does that. It's a picture of what, what God has already done. And the corresponding part is because the waters of the flood are similar, right? The, the waters of baptism are a symbol of mercy. The waters of the flood, though there was judgment were also mercy for the eight people that were saved, right? That's the grace and favor of God. So, so we've journeyed on our detour, and you'll notice that we are actually back to the central idea of this text, which is the works of Jesus, what he has done for us, the encouragement we can find in it. So we fit the sufferings of Jesus. Now the last verse, we find the victories of Christ. That's number three. Encouragement in the victories of Christ and here's verse 22. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So after the resurrection, Jesus went back up to heaven, making clear that was his rightful home. But more than that, he was exalted to the right hand of God. He assumed his rightful role as ruler of the universe. So everything, everyone, including the evil angels, the, the powers, the worldly authorities, were all subject to his authority. This is the victory. This is a completely all-encompassing victory. And it maybe goes without saying, but we just need to remind ourselves, victories are always very encouraging, aren't they? I mean, if you've ever won anything, especially in sports competition, man, anyone who's into sports, we love talking about our victories. 
I'm around a lot of soccer people right now because I'm assistant coach on Thomas's soccer team. I'm third assistant coach, actually. But, <laughs> but the other guys who are the coaches, they're real soccer guys. I mean, they played a lot of soccer. And I noticed that they like to reminisce a lot about the, the tournaments they played, the big games they played. Seems like every other week they're telling a story about this great goal, whatever it is. They're really, really excited still, even though it's like decades later. And I nod, I smile. I pretend I have a lot of stories like that also that I'm just waiting to share with them. <laughs> Thankfully, they haven't asked yet. But the point is that victories are always encouraging, even, even if you weren't on the field. I mean, think of how excited, how, think of the emotional response that comes when a team that we are supporting wins. Think of, think of what it can do to a nation. I mean, do you remember when the Raptors won the NBA Finals? Do you remember how excited we all were? I was like, I just started watching basketball and we won already? This is fantastic. I'm so excited. The Olympics are coming up. We always, everyone watches, right? Women's hockey, men's hockey. We want to see them just destroy everyone else, destroy Russia, destroy America, right? Beat Venezuela 30 nothing. I don't know if they have a team, but it's, we, we as a country are uplifted. We're pumped. And this is just sports. This doesn't mean anything, really. Nothing of significance is decided through any of those victories, and yet we feel it very intensely. So think of what Peter is saying here. He is reminding us that when it comes to the most serious threats to our lives, demonic powers, the consequences of sin, death itself, Jesus is victorious. This is a real victory. This is a victory that we should be hugely excited about. And you have to understand, for the original recipients of this letter, they really needed this encouragement. Like for the churches in Asia Minor, there were smaller churches. These were made up of Christians who knew what it meant to suffer for Jesus. Uh, many of them had fleed Roman persecution. Uh, many of them had probably been uh, rejected, ostracized by their Jewish families because they'd come to faith in a Messiah that at the time the Jewish leaders were saying wasn't the real Messiah. So they were feeling alone. They were feeling persecuted. They were feeling maybe lost, having moved, not, not sure where to go next. And remember also that this was at a time when there was no established church in society. Like there, there were no religious rites that were written down somewhere that they could appeal to. There were no tax write-offs for their charitable giving or any sense of you know, approval from, from the government. There was no system, no court system to appeal to. If people were persecuting them for their faith, they were alone. They were on their own. This was a time of real heaviness and darkness for the early church. And so these words of Peter inspired by the, by the Holy Spirit, these words were like a ray of sunshine through, through the fog, reminding them that the war had already been won. Like the battle that they were engaging in, the, the, the adversity and oppression in their lives in that moment, that Jesus had already had victory over, over the, the enemy who wants to destroy their faith, that Jesus was ruling and reigning over their lives. This was an encouragement that they needed and that, and that would have that would have really lifted them up. So I want to tell you this uh, kind of funny story about, about the connection between victory and, and encouragement. Uh, this comes from the 1800s. Um, this is about the Battle of Waterloo. I'm not sure if you know the Battle of Waterloo. Uh, this was Napoleon and the French army at the time, very big, trying to you know, take over the world like they always want to do back then. And so it was uh, England and the Dutch and the German forces that were all battling against Napoleon. And this was the battle 
that they had to, they had to stop him. And so the, the leader of the English army was Duke Wellington, and there's a big, bloody battle, and, and thankfully, Napoleon was defeated. They won. There's victory. But to get that message back to London, you know, there's no easy way to do that. So they had to send it on horseback, and then on a ship across the channel to the southern shores of uh, England, and then they had this whole system of flags. There's like people on the hilltops, and they would make, I don't know how they did it, but they would spell out the message in flags, and then the next guy would do flags all the way to London. And in London, they had a flag guy up on the top of Winchester uh, Cathedral. So here's a picture of it, because it's still standing today, obviously. So that flat part on the back, I'm pretty sure, is where they had the guy with the flags. So everyone in London is wait, you know, waiting, and they see he's up there. And he starts to spell out the message. And halfway through the message, the fog rolls in, uh, London fog, right? And they can't see the guy doing the message anymore. <laughs> So guess which half of the message they got? All they got was Wellington defeated nothing else. So everyone in London was like, oh no, Wellington was defeated. Oh no, the French, they won. Oh, those rotten French. And they were, I mean, it's kind of funny for us, but that was, they were in real peril. That meant that Napoleon and his forces were probably on their way towards England. I mean, everyone, it was, it was gloom. It was discouragement. Everyone was consoling each other. And then the fog was blown away. And I'm like, wait, he's still, he's not done. Keeps going. Wellington defeated the enemy was the whole message. Everyone's like, we won, we won, we won, we won. Everyone's dancing, celebrating. The whole country just flipped in the moment. Why? Because of the victory. Because they had actually won. They defeated their enemy. They were no longer in peril. Do you see what's going on here in this text that Peter is saying to us? Look, that same response of like joy, of dancing, high-fiving in the streets of London, that should be us as the church. That even in the midst of, of, of our sufferings, and look, Peter's been very clear, there are gonna be times of suffering, that we are called to a difficult road for those of us who follow Jesus. We are, we are called to suffer in the way that he suffered, to do it for, for the sake of righteousness. And yet in the midst of that, what God is telling us is, look, you still have reason for encouragement. You still have reason for joy. And it has everything to do with with what Jesus has done, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation. It cuts through the the fog and the darkness of the suffering of our lives. And it's something that we can find joy in each and every day. Not, Not just in the future, right? You see what it's saying here. I mean, there is that future hope on the day of our death, that that it's not the end. But it's saying that right now, Jesus is at the right hand of God. He's ruling, he's reigning, which means that everything in our lives, even the suffering, does not come from the hand of some malicious enemy who wants to destroy us. It's, It's permitted by the sovereign hand of God for his glory and for our good. The key, the key is that our minds and our hearts are filled with these truths. That, that's, if there's an application here, it's not just to know these truths, but in those times of darkness, to resist the urge to go to those things which seem more immediate, right? Something to watch, something to eat, something to buy. I mean, it's not that we shouldn't ever eat anything. It's just we need to recognize the limitations of those sources of encouragement. We need to feast our souls and our hearts on the truths of the gospel, on the sufferings of Jesus and the victories of Jesus. 
and remind ourselves that his sufferings and his victories, they're ours. That, that we are united with him in his death and his resurrection. And that because of that, man, we always have encouragement. We always have reason to hope. Let me pray that for us now as we close. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this text. Even with the puzzling parts in the middle, Lord Jesus, what an encouraging text. I, I, pray, I pray that we would think well on these verses, Lord. I pray this week in our community groups as we discuss them, as we are just in our own time of reflection with you, I pray, Lord, that, that we would not move past them quickly, that we would take the time to really delve into the, into the truths of what it meant that you suffered for us. You who were already righteous suffered for the unrighteous, that you brought us to God. Lord, I pray that we would fill our minds and our hearts with just the, the truth that right now, you're at the right hand of the Father. You're praying for us. You're interceding for us. Lord Jesus, I pray for those that are struggling with discouragement, struggling with pain, struggling with, with physical adversity, whatever it may be. Lord, I pray that they would be greatly encouraged. And I pray, Lord, for those uh, that wouldn't describe themselves as people of faith. Lord, I thank you that they're here. I thank you that they're, they're listening or tuning in. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to see their, their need for you. Help them to see the, the limitations of whatever encouragement or hope that they've, they've clung to thus far in life and to see that you have a, a, such a greater source of joy for them and a greater source of, of hope. But it begins with understanding our need, that we are in peril apart from you, that our sin is, is, is the reason for our death and the consequences that come are eternal. So please, Lord Jesus, I pray through this text and through the ministry of your spirit, you would bring many to faith and that you would encourage those of us who have faith already. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.